Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. You're listening to episode 53 of Goodwill Hunters. Today, I'm so excited to share with you an interview with our Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Alex Hawke. Minister Hawke was sworn into office on May 28 of this year, 2019, and has also been appointed the Assistant Defence Minister. The last six months for the Minister have consisted of a hectic travel schedule concentrated in the Pacific. It was great to have an opportunity to reflect on the last six months with the Minister and also chat about what the future of our aid program and our broader development cooperation agenda looks like. We met in the Commonwealth Parliament offices in Sydney on a very hot Tuesday, where the Minister and I were able to discuss a whole range of topics, including the nexus of defence and development, climate change support to the Pacific, debt sustainability, funding for infrastructure versus funding for health and education, the role of China, our agenda in Papua New Guinea, the future of our aid program, the role of NGOs, and also the advice the minister would have liked to have given himself 10 years ago. It was an insightful and comprehensive discussion, and I look forward to hearing your feedback as well as engaging more with the minister in future. All right, Minister Hawke, thank you for chatting with me today. So you were sworn into your role on May 28th, so you've been in the role just over six months now. Can you tell us what the first six months has been like? Well, very hectic, I've got to say. And look, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, When you win an election and you form government, it's always busy. But being sworn into two portfolios, I think, in defence and in foreign affairs, a new combination with a specific focus on the Pacific and international development means a lot to learn, uh, a lot to get up to speed with quickly. And so the first uh, six months has really been a very, very busy journey. And Immediately, I've, I've, I've developed a priority of getting out and about, and I think you have to in the Pacific, obviously. Relationships are critical. So it's been nine countries in about four months. Um, immediately, when you're a minister and you're new in a portfolio, they take you to Canberra and they lock you in rooms and they you know, they give you the ministerial lobotomy and they uh, they change your thinking and, and obviously, look, they do a good job of, of telling you everything you need to know. So you spend a few months doing that, but when we got out in about nine countries in four months, very busy, a week in Tuvalu, obviously, for the premier Pacific Islands Forum, the, inter, you know, the multilateral forum in the region, um, and a lot of time in-country, uh, listening, meeting people, forming relationships, and uh, working on the portfolio. So very hectic uh, and uh, a very demanding schedule, and on both the defence side and the foreign affairs side and the development side, uh, a lot of work to do. Yeah, you certainly had a massive travel schedule in the last six months. Like many ministers at the moment, I think there's been more Pacific visits in mm. the last 12 months um, than to any other region, which is really significant. You're right, and it's a, a top priority of, of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He's said it for all of his ministers about his, their travel priorities and the Pacific's at, at the top. Uh, there's been over 50 visits since uh, the start of this year, the calendar year, and that's 
ministers and officials, top officials, uh, and that just shows our emphasis. I mean, the step up is so uh, uh, so busy uh, because the prime ministers put that priority on it that uh, it's our first port of call before we think about other parts of the world. Now, in your conversations with Pacific leaders, what kind of issues are they sharing with you? Well, a multi a multitude of them. Uh, obviously, at Tuvalu, there was uh, themed issues amongst uh, climate change and certainly about climate adaptation and climate resilience. It was a focus of the forum and a lot of conversations around that. Then some uh, some themes across the region, some interest in, obviously, West Papua, some interest in um, other regional issues, uh, fishing, illegal fishing, um, there's some security issues. But when you speak with leaders bilaterally, like any bilateral relationship around the world, you tend to get the issues that are primarily affecting their countries, and they differ country to country. We've got... Um, depending on how you classify the region, you know, 16 or more countries uh, there that uh, have their own needs and their own issues. So they vary quite widely from different types of infrastructure um, to health issues uh, to other development needs and uh, economic issues, obviously, in uh, some of the bigger economies in particular. But all of them uh, work very closely with us on identifying those needs and listening to the leaders, and I've had a lot of time with the leaders of, of all of the Pacific countries now, um, they're very uh, trusting of Australia in telling us uh, what they do want um, and what they think we can help with. And because we've got that long-term partnership, uh, we're good at um, identifying what we can actually do to help. And, uh, you know, I think we've got a long-lived experience of doing a good job there. Yeah, certainly. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that you've said that the last election was a referendum on aid, in your view. Um, can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, look at a conference there, I think it was in response to a question. Um, what I meant by that was uh, this idea that um, uh, after the election that the government should look at increasing the aid budget um, is not going to happen at the moment. And uh, why I say that is because the government ran at the last election on economic management and budget management, fiscal management, and it was one of our key themes. It was um, certainly uh, a main issue of the election about uh, contestability, about who would manage the budget better and the economy better and uh, we have some strictness that we've applied across many of the parts of the government's expenditure, uh, and that's been hard for a lot of areas. Uh, but I think your listeners know, and I think everybody knows by now, our argument about getting the budget into surplus, uh, why that's important, about getting our debt under control, why that's important. So I won't, I won't go through all that today. But primarily that also includes the aid budget. So um, the Labor Party did run a policy at the last election of, of massively increasing the aid budget, um, and uh, we said, no, we want to keep it at the level we've said, about $4.2 billion, uh, and that's important for budget discipline. So the election's been decided, and we're not revisiting that envelope. Um, we are going to look at how to spend that uh, better within the envelope, uh, but I think it's important that we spend have, have a conversation with each other about how best that can be spent and how best we can do our job in that. Um, I wouldn't think it's time at this point for us to keep having this, this competition. People are free to do it, of course, but our government's going to have a discourse with the sector about um, how we can spend better and how we can do better with our aid budget and what we do need to be doing and what our strategy needs to be going forward uh, rather than the quantum. Uh, obviously, over time, that will get revisited down the track, 
Um, but for now, um, that's a settled issue from the government's point of view. Certainly. And as you've said, the Pacific is a really significant area of focus for the government and the uh, proportion of the aid budget going to the Pacific, I believe, increased from $1 billion to $1.4 billion. Mm. So we've actually increased our expenditure that's focused on the Pacific. So what does that mean for our region? Well, that's exactly right. It's gone up to $1.4 billion. It's the highest level ever. Uh, and obviously within that, we've set a, a $500 million window on climate and climate spending uh, within that, uh, all types of climate resilient infrastructure, climate adaptation measures, you know, renewable energy, things we want to see happen. Um, what it means is um, uh, more emphasis on the region, and I think you're going to see that increase as well over time, that proportion of our aid budget. It'll keep uh, ticking up uh, as our focus continues to be our backyard. Uh, it does mean we can revisit what we have been doing in our, in our different country plans and think a little bit about what, what more can be done, um, although the expenditure, the demands on expenditure are high. Um, it does enable us, of course, with more money going into the region to have more capacity to partner as well. And uh, we're looking for those partnerships with other countries and ha having more genuine uh, bilateral, trilateral, quadrilateral endeavours that we can use our aid budget to even leverage more aid budget or more development budget from other countries or more um, uh, private sector partnerships where that's possible. I suppose one of those flagship initiatives is the um, Australia Infrastructure Financing Facility, which I'm sure we'll get to. Mm -hmm. But that's another attempt there with uh, $2 billion to have a concessional financing facility as well. Mm, that's great. That's really interesting to hear. And in addition to being uh, the Minister for International Development in the Pacific, you are also the Assistant Minister for Defence. Mm -hmm. What does the convergence of the development and defence portfolios mean to you before we get more into the aid? Yeah, it's a, it's a realistic alignment of the political decision-making overlaying um, what is already part of the step-up. And I think uh, some of your listeners might understand, some might not. But I think the key success of the step-up has been the whole-of-government effort that's been put together. And that means we have an office of the Pacific within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and that's a new uh, development in the last few years that's increasingly um, overlaying all of the Pacific functions of the government um, and all our agencies, all our departments. Uh, so a whole-of-government effort that is genuinely working and having served in some other portfolios, whether that be in Treasury, which is a central agency, um, and there's only two, uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet and Treasury, and uh, uh, being in immigration for the stand-up of the Home Affairs Department, I can say the Office of the Pacific and the whole-of-government effort is probably the most functional part of the government day-to-day -day in terms of um, working across government, uh, of a whole-of-government effort. And it's, it's very hard to do in government, Governments across the world find it very difficult to work with each other, you know, government departments. So uh, we're certainly being uh, watched very closely by our partners at Japan, um, New Zealand, uh, the US, and each of them has sort of done a, a mini version of their own step up, whether it's a reset, I think New Zealand's calling it, Japan's got their own word. Others are looking at it and saying, well, that actually is a very good model to bring together parts of the government that haven't traditionally worked together. And in this space, when you think of defence, Defence is the great enabler for so much of the work we do in the Pacific, whether it's the humanitarian effort. Um, Defence can often provide all the capacity to support it. Um, Tuvalu, for example, we had our RAF there flying everyone in and out. So Fiji Airways had planes grounded, the MAXs were grounded, plus the runway was being redeveloped. So if the RAAF didn't step in, if we Australia didn't step in, Tuvalu wouldn't have been able to host a, a Pacific Island forum as well as it did. And... So our defence does so much in the region already, so bringing it all together with the foreign affairs um, guidance, I think it helps defence. I think it helps defence in what they do. And, and defence helps foreign affairs 
uh, become uh, even more uh, operational as well and understanding of the operational requirements. So it works very well together. Yeah, definitely. And especially given the focus in the sector in the moment of the nexus of development and defence, it does seem to be the topic that everyone's talking about. So it's 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 great to see mm. the convergence in your own work. Mm. Um, I might take that opportunity to clarify the distinction between your role and that of the foreign minister. Mm. How do you separate the portfolio? Oh, well, look, the foreign minister is my boss, so I do what she tells me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the way it works. Um, however, what she's asked me to do is all of the uh, specific specific policy and other work that has to be done day to day. Um, and it's as, you, as we've been discussing, an extremely busy and uh, uh, progressing environment there's a new initiative every few weeks to months from the Morrison government in relation to the Pacific I'm launching one tomorrow the um, Australian Pacific Security College is being launched tomorrow so obviously I'll be making an announcement there tomorrow formally um, there's there's new ones coming on every few months so there's a lot of policy work to follow up um, a lot of uh, relational work a lot of uh, development policy work which I'm sure we'll get to unless you're not interested in that issue um, and uh, other other matters that I guess there is too much for any one minister to do, so I work very closely to the foreign minister um, in all the matters for the Pacific. And I think Australia having its own uh, specific minister dedicated to the Pacific makes enormous sense, um, especially given that's what we say is our top foreign policy priority. And when it's busy in Europe, and there are good reasons for us to be engaged with Europe or in the Middle East, and you know, good reasons for us to be engaged in the Middle East or other crises in our region, uh, Southeast Asia... In, in China or India, our foreign minister has to work very hard on those things and a minister can work um, every single day uh, on the Pacific while those things are going on. So while I'm in the foreign affairs and trade portfolio, I don't spend my time based looking at the entire world. I, I focus into the Pacific and I think that's the difference. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about development policy hmm. because it's definitely of interest. Um, I- I think, I think that's my fault. I opened that up, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you did. You set yourself up for that. I, I think to start that conversation, though, I'd first be interested in your take. It's quite a pertinent time for us to be having mm. this conversation, um, given the extent of the drought in Australia at yes. the moment. And there are a lot of questions being raised around things like we should divert our aid spending to the drought. Yep. It's a question of priorities, I think, at the moment is really um, topical in the media. Can you comment on how you respond to questions uh, about where aid fits into our national priorities? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the aid budget can be contestable at different times. And you look, know, being in politics, organised politics, about 25 years, I've certainly heard different parts of sometimes different ends of the political spectrum argue this case, whether it's the right or the left, you can tend to get from time to time a view that foreign aid should be spent here or we shouldn't have foreign aid or we shouldn't have an aid budget or maybe we need to draw it down now. I guess the best way to counter that argument from my time in politics and working in the portfolio is um, we have a federal government for a reason and, and one of the reasons the state's federated was to have that national approach and our international affairs are uh, relevant to Australia in every single way, being a good international citizen, looking after our region, uh, caring for people. It kind of Australians would like the government to be a microcosm of the way they are uh, and what their views and outlooks are, regardless of their views in, on politics. Um, Australians are decent people. I think generally we're a pretty caring society. Um, most people want to help other people, uh, whether they're in Australia or whether in other parts of the world. Uh, and we'd like our country to be that way internationally as well. 
And that's, I think that's the vast bulk of Australia, regardless of whether there are some people that aren't like that. Most people, whatever side of the political spectrum they're on, tend to have a view, we need to help other people as much as we can and, and whenever we can. And we do. And you see Australians do it in charities. You see them do it you know, when disasters come on. You see them when they go overseas and the Australian sort of travel bug and helping and uh, a lot of people help through their churches, help through their um, uh, charities or help through their mission work or whatever it is they do. Um, sometimes through their uh, uh, economic work overseas, they do a lot of good in training and helping people. Um, Australians generally embody that. The government should embody that also. So the aid budget is a reflection of that. And having a federal government means we have to uh, uh, not just pursue Australian foreign policy aims and our objectives and values as a country and promote them, but also look after our neighbourhood. Um, and that's the, that's the Prime Minister's view and the government's view. And I think it's going to stay in a federal government policy regardless of who forms office in the future. I think uh, you'll see a focus on the Pacific because it's our family and the region. We, we do think of them as family. And whenever you put it to Australians, and especially if you, people who go to Fiji and you say, well, look, if you leave your resort, if you get out of town, you're doing a lot of good by going to Fiji and, and, and staying there economically. But if you do look around, it is still a, a poor country for many people and we have to do whatever we can to help people, and we do in Fiji. Um, you go to PNG, you know, there's a lot of need to help. And our aid budget is designed not just uh, as, a, as aid but also to help those countries um, get the means they can to improve themselves. I think it's widely supported. I don't hear a lot of people say you're spending too much in the Pacific or you're doing too much. That's It's very uncommon to hear that. Uh, but you do hear sometimes, oh, well, we have fires, but we've got to remember with a $300 billion budget every year or thereabouts, um, we have enough to do, uh, you know, 1.4 into the Pacific and also to do the things we need to do on fire and need to do the things we do for Australians. And we, we are a wealthy country and we do have the capacity to do all those things. Mm. I think you've illustrated the altruistic value of aid really well there. I'm interested as well, though, in your take on whether aid is in Australia's national interest because it contributes to regional stability. Obviously both. I think it is um, altruism is one part of it. And I think that is it is kind of the philosophy of Australia. The, you know, the fair go comes from that for everybody and helping other people is part of who we are. So I think that's part of why we do it. But yes, aid is in our national interest as well and I think a case can be clearly made. Um, you know, we, we often reflect on um, some of the things that happen in PNG and, and you know, it's uh, whether it might be drug-resistant tuberculosis, you know, uh, health or other issues that break out in that country. We're such near neighbours, we're such close, um, in close proximity and constant contact between peoples that... Um, you know, any outbreak there can easily infect Australians. And I think, you know, on any measure that you look at it, it makes sense for us to help, not just because we're saving lives as well and saving children's lives and doing good things for people, but also because it's in Australia's interest directly as well. So there's a tension, but I don't think that they're in conflict. I think uh, obviously they are uh, pretty uh, objectives that work together. And I think Australia makes them work together better than a lot of other countries do. Sometimes you'll see other countries in the region doing something, but it's because of a strategic reason um, or just a national interest reason or an objective that they're seeking. Uh, for us, it's always uh, uh, there's always a multiplicity of reasons, and I think primarily we're about the um, the more altruistic reasons than the strategic reasons or the outcome based reasons. Mm. Again, on the point of the development policy, the new aid paradigm, or specifically the development cooperation policy from 2013, which was um, from the then um, foreign minister Julie Bishop. Yep. Um, is possibly getting a little outdated. Mm. Um, 
I know that organisations in the sector, including ACFED, as well as many international development contractors, have um, taken the unprecedented step of uh, calling for a new policy together. So, is a policy refresh on the horizon? Well, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, obviously, 2013 is uh, six years ago, but uh, the way the world is progressing today, things move a lot faster. Uh, you know, obviously, things have changed a lot in the last six years, and the government's very aware of that. Uh, and I think we've already started the conversation about um, our aid program and the objectives that it has, the strategy behind it, the, the plans beneath it, uh, and the need to refresh and also look at how often we will be refreshing and updating those plans. I think there's a, there's a set of issues under what you've raised there as well. Uh, is it enough these days to set it even on a five or ten year horizon? Most people would start to think, look, you know, the way the world's moving, we need to we need to think about these things more regularly. Uh, so the government's certainly looking at that now. Uh, I think there'll be uh, announcements coming in the near future, but we've already signalled that um, there's a conversation to be had about this and about uh, ensuring we have a, a new aid plan. Great. You earlier touched on the Australian Infrastructure Facility, mm. which I think is um, also a representation of uh, the infrastructure and private sector focused approach that yep. we have had to the Pacific in the past. Yep. Um, I'm interested in your take on how we balance that focus on private sector investment and infrastructure with meeting more basic needs like health and education. Um, mm. Because as you would know from working in the Pacific, health and education remain so paramount to Pacific Island leaders. Um, yes. How do we balance the focus on the two areas? Yeah, very good question. Uh, the the balance, uh, I think, is, is hard in some sectors. Uh, health... I think there are obvious models for private sector investment and aid cooperation. I mean, obviously, in, in many Western societies, there's a lot of money in health and health operations, and they're quite well-established commercial models. And so you can seek private investment into health projects in the Pacific, and there have been some examples and some companies, Australian companies, American companies, that can design and come up with models that work for Pacific countries in partnership with... Um, is sometimes a concessional finance facility like Australia's putting forward or multilateral agencies. It can get a lot harder in, in places like education. To um, Obviously, they're not commercial in the same way uh, in, in Pacific countries that, that other areas can be to, to obviously um, be viable for private investment. Uh, that's where I think, you know, even in Tuvalu when we were there, Australia's building the school. You know, Australia's the only country that has a post in Tuvalu and we're the only country building a school in Tuvalu. You know, we're you know, funding it and doing a good job there and uh, working very hard with uh, the people of Tuvalu to get that up to, up to um, the standard they expect and improve education outcomes. So there's a huge role there for the development budget to fill those gaps um, and continue to fund those areas where uh, we can't get a private sector partner. But where we can, we think obviously it's good to do so, whether that be a multilateral agency or the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or a partner that is a genuine actor in the region, a country partner a multilateral agency, a bank, uh, but also private sector investment. We're not adverse to it. We think it will help. The more money we have coming into the region, the better, and the more genuine commercially viable outcomes for the region, the better as well. Mm. Yep, yep. Great, thank you. I, I think on the point of expenditure in the Pacific, something else that would be good to clarify is that a few Pacific Island leaders um, – uh, turned down the $500 million that Australia offered for climate change 
um, in the region, claiming that it wasn't actually new money and that Australia was asking them to divert um, existing aid money into climate change. Can you clarify, was it new money or are we asking Pacific Island leaders to refocus um, aid money on climate? Uh, no, it's not new money, obviously. It's within the existing envelope. Um, uh, however, we are spending more than uh, before in the Pacific, so you do have a bigger amount going to the Pacific, as we've discussed, $1.4 million. $500 is a window within that uh, that will be on, as I said, climate adaptation, climate resilience, and that's a recognition that uh, more and more projects, more and more of the aid budget is related to climate uh, in infrastructure or outcomes, whether that be in health or... Um, you know, preparation for climate change. And uh, I think that that has been well received generally uh, by the Pacific and because that, that's their top issue and obviously it's a top issue because it affects so many parts of their uh, uh, livelihood and society. And having that window there means that of the $1.4 billion, we're going to make sure that the biggest chunk, in a sense, is being spent on the climate adaptation and resilience within that. And I think... That's an important signal to send from Australia. It, it, it also counters the false narrative that we have internationally sometimes that we don't do enough. Um, our $1.4 billion is the highest single country spend in the region. The $500 million that will go on climate change is the single highest country spend in the region. But by far, we're not, we're not even coming close to being matched. Uh, and uh, that's just recognition that we, we understand climate change is the number one issue. Now, beyond that, of course, there are other things that will, you know, we, we have our own climate reduction fund here in Australia, things we're doing here that will help with climate, but in the Pacific specifically, there'll be a, a window that is spent there, and I think that's to, their, to the benefit of the Pacific. Yeah, yeah, great. And I think there you touched on multilaterals and the role of um, the World Bank and ADB and others, and I think I mentioned to you I was with the World Bank for two years, so great. certainly a topic I like talking about. Mm. Um, can you comment on, I mean, Australia is uh, entirely funding those multilaterals mm. in the region, and we are looking to move towards loans rather than grants, which does raise the issue of things like debt sustainability. Um what does that look like, Australia's continued support for multilaterals, and how do we manage the risk of unsustainable debt for our Pacific neighbours? Yeah, and we've flagged this as one of the most important issues. Um, unsustainable debt burdens for these countries is a huge concern. And the quality of the infrastructure or the, the outcome that they're receiving for the debt they're accumulating. So it's kind of a duality of issues. Um, some countries have got themselves into debt and received very poor quality infrastructure as well, which is a double whammy in terms of impact uh, and, and very poor outcome for the country. So that's why we're working closely with all of our partners and we'll work with everybody. You know, sometimes people think, oh, you'll just work with the United States or Japan. We'll absolutely work with China in terms of delivering um, higher quality infrastructure in the Pacific or making sure their projects work for countries. Uh, however, on financing, you know, we are against all forms of risky financing uh, and models where uh, countries go into too much debt or, or too much of a debt burden uh, with unreliable partners, uh, unreliable fiscal partners. And that's why we think the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank have the right rules and the right standards on that and are able to help refinance countries' debts in a way uh, that is sustainable. So we certainly work with them closely. Um, we also want to make sure um, we don't lend to countries that have unsustainable debt-to-GDP ratios, and we've identified those countries that do, and we've told them, you know, you won't get loans from us um, while we have these ratios of debt. So, you know, we are, we're also good practitioners in the region. We don't just add to people's debt if they're already in a debt 
uh, crisis or an unsustainable debt load. So uh, that's our standard. Um, I think it's a good standard, but equally we listen and work very closely with those countries bilaterally. We're in conversation with a number of them at the moment about their finances and, and helping them and whatever we can do to help, whether it's our Treasury officials or our Reserve Bank, um, and we have engagement with both, whether it's our economists that can help, whether it's uh, our direct support for finances. We have conversations underway um, to help uh, Pacific countries get through these, uh, these, these things that they end up in. But I think the leadership of the Pacific has taken on board Australia's message very clearly that um, uh, you have to be wary about what debt you accumulate under what terms. Um, I think there's an, more awareness than uh, there has been for some time amongst the leadership that there are sometimes the willing partner who wants to put you into um, more debt uh, and off is offering you money at an unsustainable rate. There are catches, there are problems, there are, there are issues down the track. Um, I, I see more awareness of that and, and you know, the ministers and the, le and the leaders I've met with are very savvy people about their own country's interests and they, uh, they certainly understand that there's been a process of that occurring and it hasn't been productive and it's left them in some debt, uh, debt that is unsustainable in some cases. Uh, and so we'll, we'll partner with those agencies to help them get out of it. I mean, again, Australia's interest is, you know, we don't want to get involved in their sovereign decisions. We just want to help them out of a, a challenge. And, uh, you know, we're the best partners, I think, in terms of listening and saying, okay, what can we do? How can we find another partner? How can we help you uh, get yourself out of, the, out of this issue that's been created? Yeah, you, you did touch on China there. Um, I was in Papua New Guinea last mm. week and certainly the the role of Chinese aid and broader development assistance in Papua New Guinea comes up a lot. And they are, of course, Papua mm. New Guinea being the country uh, that receives the greatest proportion of Australia's aid. Can you comment specifically on our approach to Papua New Guinea and also how you see cooperation with other development partners unfolding there? Yeah, well, this is a great question. PNG is um, obviously one of the biggest and most important relationships in the Pacific um, for historical reasons and obviously our aid budget is still going to remain number one for us spending on PNG. Um, we want to make sure we're getting the best outcomes there and how we do that is a, is a live question we have with the government at all times and we've got a new government there. Um, they've been here early, brought a huge delegation of governors and ministers. We had around the cabinet table some discussions that were extremely productive and they've approach their economy with a new zeal as well to kind of be honest about the state of it and we appreciate that and we're working with them very closely. Uh, we're working with the World Bank and the and the Asian Development Bank and the Government of Papua New Guinea to honestly appraise their fiscal situation and help them any way we can in restoring greater certainty to their budget. Um, we're going to continue to prioritise economic development PNG, business uh, to business from Australia to PNG contact, economic engagement but also looking at our, how best to spend our money, and it is a good amount of money, into PNG to help with health and education outcomes and the things that are going really well. They won't be revisiting everything, obviously. There's lots of great work going on there, lots of things that need to be continued and sustained. Um, and then, of course, there's new ways to help support the, the government, the new government there, deliver what their objectives are, and they're, they're looking at their, their priorities with us bilaterally. In terms of other partners, I think there's two parts to your question. I mean, the first part was so good about PNG. Um, it's uh, but look, the new government, the relationship is just so strong, and it's 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 day to day, week to week contact at the moment, and it's a very strong contact, and it's very positive. So, you know, we, we're putting a primacy on that. At the other partners in PNG, we want to bring everybody on. I mean, we want to um, continue to partner with China as much as the United States, especially in things like um, you know uh, malaria vaccinations and 
health, education, uh, other things, we'll work with them. And we've been very clear in signalling to China that absolutely, if we can partner, let's partner. Um, it's the best way to proceed. We don't want uh, strategic competition to impact um, outcomes for real people. And uh, I think we can find a balance there with the right partnership. Uh, the reality is, of course, though, we, you know, we're in a partnership there on electrification with the United States. Um, the Lombrom uh, Naval Base, of course, for PNG, we're building that with the United States for the PNG government. Um, some of the things we're doing, we're finding other partners, uh, Japan as well, uh, in PNG, and we'll continue to seek partners, but everyone's out there. We want to work with anyone who wants to do good in PNG. Great. The other reflection I've had after I've been working in the Pacific for about seven years now, and um, one of the things I've always noticed is in Australia, the separation between uh, faith and religion and our overseas development work is quite fragmented. It seems mm. that we don't like to combine the two, whereas in the Pacific, the connection between faith and community development mm. is you know, completely inseparable. Um, what's been your experience of that and how have you seen that unfold? Yeah, certainly. And look, our government has um, signalled that um, we're very comfortable with, uh, with that. Uh, we're working with our agencies through churches more often makes sense. Um, certainly there's a cultural similarity with a lot of Australians identifying as Christians and uh, the strong Christian uh, nature of the Pacific. It's, it's a strength and something we can use for great good. I mean, some of the great work, Tim Costello came to see me about the great work he's been doing with um, some of the churches on the domestic violence question, some of the attitudes to women. This is where social institutions like churches, uh, even if you're not religious, we have to work through the social institutions that exist. They're strong, they exist. Um, from the government's point of view, there's great commonality there uh, with our own churches and everybody's got a role to play in the step up, whether it is the government or private institutions like churches or religious leaders and really value what Tim is doing. And other, there's a lot of church leaders working hard on questions that the government finds very difficult to address through government-to-government -government channels like domestic violence. The reality is that, you know, the policies there are not working as and they're not doing the good that we want them to do. We have to be frank with each other about that and uh, keep working very hard on those questions. As you know from your time in the Pacific, it's one of the key challenges. So churches are, I hope, at the side on some of these questions and the engagement there seems to be having more uh, success than other channels. So we've got to follow that. And I think uh, there's no, we don't have to be threatened by the combination of sometimes of religious and and, and aid work. Uh, in fact, it's sort of got, a, a, I would argue as a Christian, a very strong historical connection um, and a deep one. It's not that the government has to be that way, but we can certainly make sure we leverage those very important long-standing relationships and connections and that is the way those societies are structured and we have to deal with it. Absolutely. I think anyone that spent even a week in the Pacific would agree that the societies are structured around the church. So I think that's a great point. I think churches are one way to build people-to-people -people links in the region. Um, how else do we build those people-to-people -people links through, you know, is it sport? Is it labour migration schemes? Mm. How are we ensuring that everyday Australians are able to connect with our yeah, Pacific neighbours? That's a fabulous question. There's two obvious ones. I mean, sport is the fabulous one that we're spending a lot of time on. Uh, from the government's perspective, investing in different sports in the region. And, you know, as we talked about women and girls, well, making sure our, our women's sports teams engage in the region as well. They've been visiting and so well received in the region and we fund a lot of women's sports as well as men. And it's um, it's it's having a real impact in terms of the, the, the understanding between Australians and, and Pacific Islanders. And certainly in, uh, you know, the National Rugby League, you know, people identify with all the, all the different Pacific Islander countries and my own team. 
um, the Parramatta Eels put together one video on uh, Mike Acevo, who was, you know, pretty much a rookie of the year this year. He scored more tries than anyone else in his first year playing rugby league ever. Uh, and that video, just a simple video, it was just so well received. It, you know, I don't want to say viral is an overused term, but it, it got such coverage. You know, so I've said to Defat and everyone else, just look at the impact that one human story of a person who's come over to do that. Can, you know, because they showed his village back home, his dad, who was a real humble, you know, Pacific Islander, just a normal um, example of a Fijian uh, of that generation. But it was all such, it just did more to expose Australians to the ordinary understanding of the real Pacific than I think a lot of other things that we try and do. So sport's a great connector. Um, business is a great connector as well. We do need more businesses doing business in the Pacific and we do need more uh, Pacific Islanders, you know, having access to our labour market, as you said, but also our business market and doing business in Australia. And uh, those things form great links as well. We're very proud of our Pacific labour schemes and how they're progressing uh, and the interaction that they have here. And we do have opportunities, though, in the diaspora in Australia that aren't really... Uh, being utilised as much as the moment as they might be and we're working with the um, Pacific Heads of Mission that are in Australia to sort of think well how can we utilise the existing diasporas from the Pacific to make sure we've got those links going back and forth. I'd say this to you directly as a, um, a you know someone who's very experienced in the Pacific and you're doing the right thing here today but a, a quasi-journalist I think there's a role for the media to step up you know you know there, there used to be a lot more media reporting on the Pacific and uh, used to be a lot of journalists based in the Pacific or reporting about Pacific affairs. You know, as much as we say everyone's got a role to play, churches, well, the media's got a role to play too. We need more. We want, there are great things going on in the Pacific, really interesting stories, great things happening all the time. Um, you know, not the government's policies. I'm talking about just day-to-day life, things that go on. There are, you know, there are also bad things. We don't see enough of it in Australia. We need more reporting. We certainly want the ABC to be doing more of that as well um, and our broadcasters as well commercial and, um, and uh, the government's ABC. Um, yeah, they're, they're the kind of things that will, uh, I think, build more people-to-people connections as well, just day-to-day understanding and commonality. And I find Australians have a huge interest in what's going on in the Pacific. And then when you get down to the very granular, like DFAT's Volunteers Program, everywhere I go and I visit the volunteers overseas, and the Aussies that have done that, that are, that are over there, that are living there for years or doing the work, I love it. There's such diversity of background. You get, you know, one place I was there, there was a... You know, person whose expertise was beekeeping and someone else was a lawyer. But we've got to remember as Australians, and, and we do, we're such a voluntary society still, even in this era where voluntarism is, is getting eroded, we're still so good at volunteering and helping others. When they get over there, anybody who's got a skill in this country in anything is so valuable in the Pacific, they love it. And, and going over there and, 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 and you know learning and integrating teaching, both ways learning sometimes, it, 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 these volunteers are so happy and contributing so much, it's a great program and that kind of thing. We're going to expand all of those, all the training opportunities, the volunteering opportunities, the, the real people-to-people connections that build strength. Mm. I think AVI is a fantastic testament mm. to the program. It's, it's, it's terrific. Okay, I've got two more questions before we finish. The first is sort of a big picture. What does success look like for you in this role? And not just in this role, but also in the convergence of both of your ministerial roles. Um can you explain to us what success looks like, say, three years from now? Yes, okay, three years is an interesting benchmark. I think <laughs> I'd say, first of all, success for me looks like a sustained, deep relationship with the Pacific over 30 years, you know, that we never, as a country or a people, lose sight of the importance and the relevance of the Pacific. And 
I think we did for a bit, lost a bit of focus, got distracted, the world moved on a bit, we moved on a little bit, we were still there, we were still doing things, but maybe our focus wasn't there. So I think maintaining that focus is one thing I would say over the long haul that Australia never does forget that, they, you know, we owe a great debt to the people of the Pacific, you know, we are the Pacific, um, you know, we, we certainly, you know, take a country like PNG, our wartime debt is immense, you know, our cultural com- commonality is immense, um, whether it be from our Indigenous people and, and Melanesian people, you know, through to now our role in the region for the last few hundred years. Um, the connections are there. So have, maintaining those connections and making sure they understand and we understand day to day that we, we are our first partners of choice and we're all the same people in the same region, I think is a really important thing. Uh, success, of course, for me will be um, how many uh, how many people were able to sort of help. Um, and in three years, I'd like to see a more prosperous Pacific. I'd like to see... Um, more business being done between our country and Pacific countries. And why do I say that? Not because of money-making opportunities, but because the average prosperity probably needs to lift. You know, uh, you know the, the, the peoples of the Pacific are still um, needing to be lifted uh, in an economic sense. And without that, um, I just don't see them as aid recipients or donor recipients forever or clients of Australia or... That, that's it. It's not the way to look at this. Um, you know, there, there's so, so, so much talent... So many people have got such prospects. There's, there are beautiful cultures and beautiful people there, uh, and we want to make sure they're very successful. So in three years, I'd like to see them more prosperous and have better opportunities and better access to those opportunities. And it means those basic things, health, education, um, training opportunities, job opportunities, and uh, economic you know, opportunity as well. So they're the things we want to make sure we're uh, creating and making sure they have so that the, the average lives. Yeah, what, what would you say to the NGO sector in Australia on that point? Well, you guys are critical. I mean, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, I, I find every NGO I meet with is doing something pretty pretty amazing, um, you know, in every way. Uh, I, I think there's a good understanding in 2019 of the, of, the, of the problems with the dependency matrix. People aren't looking to keep people on dependency or have people, you know, to stay on their books forever. I think people are always trying to get people their own skill sets or get them healthy or get them, you know, more education or get them um, into doing what they want to be doing. Um, and that, that seems to come through all the time now. So the old old thinking has sort of moved on a bit and NGOs seem to be really vibrant and relevant in everything they're doing. I think they have to be pretty attuned to, um, you know, what, uh, what the needs of the country are, uh, balanced with um, what is able to be done. So sometimes... Uh, you know, sometimes people are doing good work, but, um, you know, the model um, probably isn't going to be sustainable in the long haul. And that's very hard to see sometimes um, because you're doing such good work or good outcome, but, you know, it may not may not last. So where we can work on sustainability and sort of a longer-term horizon, and that's collaborating with gov- government, collaborating with partners, and trying to keep that focus on um, the basics, health, education and development outcomes. Great. Okay, last question. What would... Alex Hawke of 10 years ago, say to Minister Alex Hawke today? Oh, gosh, that is like the hardest <laughs> question you've asked so far. <laughs> Alex Hawke of 10 years ago, I said to Minister Hawke today, um, well, you know, I don't, I, do, I don't want to make a, uh, a reflection. I, I think they would say, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, don't waste a day, probably. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the best message. Um I think that's relevant. Ten years ago, things were a little bit more prosperous than they are now. So we think, oh, gosh, you know, things are pretty 
bad economically at the moment or we can't do things. Yeah, Australia is such a great place. We, you know, we're a bit dark on ourselves sometimes. There's so much opportunity. Uh, there's so many things we can do right now in the Pacific and we probably need to not waste a day as a society and so much goodwill towards the Pacific, but, you know, we've really all got to get it going and the government's enabling it. You know, we're doing the, the step up. Uh, our agencies are focused on it every single day, you know, and the PM's focused on it and having a PM, a government, all our agencies saying Pacific is the top priority and we need to do it every day. I think it's don't waste a single day, any of us. It's a great answer. Thank you so much no, for your time. You. Cheers. That's it for episode 53. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we welcome your feedback. And if you love the show, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes so that we can reach more people and continue to grow this fantastic community. Before I go, I also wanted to add that I spent last week up in PNG with the Lowy Institute as part of the Australia PNG Emerging Leaders Dialogue. It was a brilliant week in beautiful East Sepik, and we were kindly supported by the Australian High Commission. I had the opportunity to engage with truly outstanding delegates from both countries, and I encourage you to check out the Australia PNG Network website and Facebook pages to learn more about what we did. Please reach out to me at any time via rachel at goodwillhunterspodcast.com.au if you've got any ideas for the show, if you'd like to sponsor a series of episodes, or if you have an amazing person in mind that you'd like me to interview. I'd love to hear from you. See you next week.